0: So, I grew up not really enjoying playing with Legos, you know? The, the, yeah, isn't that crazy? Here's the reason. I didn't have like all these cool Lego kits like you have today, you know, the X-Wing fighters and stuff like that. I just had like a couple coffee cans of mismatched bricks, you know? So I'd see these cool pictures of, you know, castles and I'd try to build it and I'd, just, I'd get like a wall <laughs> or a tower. You know, that was it. I, I was not creative, nor did I have the, the Legos to be creative. But I always appreciate, you know, people that really, they could see beyond the bricks, right? They could take these things and create something really cool and amazing. My wife, Laura, has a cousin who has a Lego store in Las Vegas. Uh, not the kind of Lego store you think of. Uh, he builds people, you know. So um, here's a couple illustrations. There's uh, Kobe Bryant and... Uh, you see that photo? You've seen that photo before, right? The great, incredible uh, dunk. So here's the, the Legos that he built. Here's the Kobe. Uh, a life-size uh, Kobe dunking the ball. Isn't that amazing? Um, for some of you, uh, maybe more into the, the hockey, uh, Mark Stone. Here's another picture of Mark Stone from uh, the, the Vegas Knight, Golden Knights. That's over six feet tall. It's like six and a half feet tall that he built. And then those of you who are not into sports, but more into, like, you're serious, you're into work and, uh, you know, managing the office, uh, here's another one, Dwight and Michael. But isn't that amazing? Like, people that can, you know, see something and they can imagine it and they can build it and they build these models. And while they're, you know, some of them are life-size, they're still just models. Right? Nobody would go up to, to, to Mark Stone and say, hey, tell me about the hat trick in the finals and wait for an answer because it's just, it's just a Lego. It's just a model. We have models throughout our life. In our culture, we have different models because they, they, they show us what life could be like you know, in these different scenarios. So think of a model home. Okay, you're you're looking for a home, you see this new track, and there's a model home, and you go in there, and it shows you what this new home would look like if you didn't have three generations of junk, you know, that's in your house right now. If you got rid of all that stuff, and you brought all brand new things, this is what your life could look like. It looks nice, right? Or swimsuit models. They tell you, they show you, like, if you bought this swimsuit, this is what you look like, right? It's a model. Uh, some models are more realistic than others, but we understand uh, models in our life, whether it's Legos or uh, home models. We, we, it gives us a picture of, uh, of what life looks like. Today, we are in kind of the middle of the Old Testament, and we see a model of what the kingdom of God looks like. Okay, so we have been on a, a study called Kingdom Come, right? We've been looking at the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of heaven. And we've been trying to see uh, what it is and how it, what it, it means to us. What change should it make in our life? Uh, I read a, a quote this week that kind of captures the importance of this. It's by a guy named Gordon Fee. If you've read anything about hermeneutics and studying the Bible, you've probably read his stuff. Uh, But he was saying, he said, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and he doesn't define it, right? He doesn't go into like a great depth of describing it. Why? The reason is because the readers, the people of that day, when he said the kingdom of God, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They, They knew it. He didn't have to define it. He didn't have to describe it. They already knew. But for us... When we hear the kingdom of God, we're like, I don't know what that is. I don't know. I don't know what that is. And it's, if you had to explain it in the Bible study, you'd be like, oh, well, it's a little bit of this. And maybe you, maybe you have a few things to pull from. But we don't understand. And here's what Gordon Fee said. He said, you cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. Okay? He says, you are a zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm sorry to say it so strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God and therefore literally have done Jesus in. Those are strong words. Strong words. And he's saying this is a critique to the church, that we as a church, we have taught many good things. We, we understand our Bible. We've taught it from front to back and all of that. But we have missed this whole idea of the kingdom of God. But if we are going to understand Jesus, if we're going to understand our Bibles, if we're going to understand what is to come, we got to get this. we got to get this concept. So that's why we're studying this. This is why we're taking some time to work through this important topic. So we have been working our way through. We started in Genesis, right, kind of with this pattern of the kingdom, what it looks like. God has made men and women in his image, and he's put us as rulers In this world and then we kind of saw the perished kingdom how it kind of just fell apart instead of uh, submitting to God as king we decided we'd be our own king we would do our things our own way and that uh, ended up in disaster but last week we talked about the promised kingdom that God had not given up on his people and he defines the kingdom even a little more specifically to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 he says I'm gonna build these things right I'm going to be the king, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a nation. I'm going to give you people. We're going to give you land, right? I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to the nations. So he's kind of defining that kingdom right there to Abram. But how do we get from that to where we're at today? Today we'll be looking at this partial kingdom, this kingdom of Israel in its glory. This is the glory days, Right, If, you're gonna, if you want to see uh, the kingdom of God in its fullness in the Old Testament, you're going to look to the time of David, of Solomon, right, where the kingdom is in its fullness. This is the beautiful time. This is the best time in Israel's history. It, was, it, it never was that before. It was never so good after. It was these years where we saw the kingdom of God in its fullness. But we'll still call it partial, right? Because while it is so good, while it's, it's great and God's blessing is all over, we still have kings that are far from perfect. Okay, we still have people with hardened hearts that follow other things and follow other gods. Right? And as much as Israel in that area was blessed, it's still far short of the whole world being blessed. So when we look at this, we see that it's a model. It's a picture of what the kingdom of God will look like in the future. Okay, so that's what we want us to see. We want us to see this kingdom of God so that we can anticipate it. So that when we hear it in a couple weeks, when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God is in your midst, we will have a picture. We will understand what he's talking about. It won't be lost on us. Okay, so that's where we're going to go today. And we're going to start here kind of picking up with where we left off with Abram. In Genesis 12 but we're gonna look we're gonna see that there's a king who leads his people that God has been the king he's always been the king and he'll keep leading his people so he says to Abram what's he say remember I'm gonna make you into a great nation but remember it's just Abram and Sarah it's just them there are no kids right no generations and all that yet to come so how do we get to that point to a nation well, we fast through through Genesis when we get to Exodus. And when we get to Exodus, we see the the people of God. We see them as a nation. They're good, you know, million to 3 million strong. But there's a problem. While God over these 400 years has created a nation and a group of people, they are all slaves in Egypt. That's a small little problem, right? They're slaves, They therefore they don't own any land. So God has created this nation, great, check. But how will he get them into their own land? So here's where the story where God shows up and he just takes battle against Pharaoh in Egypt, right? And he leads his people out. He takes them out of Egypt and across the sea and into the, into the desert. While they're there, they kind of get the ground rules of how they're going to relate to each other. He takes them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the law. He says, here's what I expect. Here's how I want you to live. Then he, he shows them the tabernacle. Here's how I'm going to dwell with you. right? And he goes in and he shows them this, this, uh, this tent that he'll meet with them. So he, they'll be his people. He'll be their God. They'll be together. So once they get those things worked out, he says, now I'm going to take you to your land. All right? So he takes them over towards uh, where the land is that he's He's going to give them, but there's also one little problem. Big problem for them, little problem for God. This land is full of people. right? It's full of other nations. Each city is like a nation, right? So it's just each city throughout there has its own army and defenses and all that. And the spies go through there and say, this land is beautiful. God has given us wonderful land. But there are some big people in here. There's some giants. There's some scary people. These walls are thick. There's no way we can get into that. And they had forgotten. They just forgot how God took them out of mighty, the mighty kingdom of Egypt. Which there's, how in the world would he get out of it? But God did that. And now there's these little, little small nations. But they, 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 they didn't trust that God would take care of them in this new nation. And so they rejected him. Right? We read it in our Bibles like they were just maybe fearful, they were afraid, they didn't have faith. But what they're saying is, we don't trust you. We would rather be slaves back in the foreign land of Egypt than go fight these battles and fight these people. Even though God says, I'm going to be the one fighting the battles. They said, no, we don't want to do that. And they rejected God's provision, his care. They rejected him as king. So what would the rejected king do? A lot of rejected kings would destroy the people. But God says, I'm going to be patient with you, All right? I'm going to let you dwell in the desert till this generation dies, but we're going to raise up a new generation. It's going to be your sons and daughters that I'm going to build, and, and we're going to use, take them into this land. They're going to follow me as their king. They're going to trust me, and I'm going to take them into the promised land. I'm not giving up on you because you are my people. I'm going to hold to my promises. I'm going to give you that land. And so that generation goes by, and Moses dies, and a new leader comes. His name's Joshua. Joshua says, I'm going to lead you guys into the promised land, and he does. They go up to Jericho, and what do they do? They walk around it. A few times, the walls come tumbling down. They didn't do it. That was all God. God's showing them, I've got this. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm your king. I'm fighting for you. And they do this throughout the land. And they have some setbacks. But they're learning how to trust this God. And pretty soon, the land is taken. They have filled it. Right now, they are a mighty nation. And they have their land, the land that God promised them. Check. But how would they be a Blessing. Right? You'll be a people, I'll give you land, and then I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless others. So how would that happen? Well, as we see the, the story move forward, it's not very pretty. Right? We open up the book of Judges, and in Judges we just see the people on their own. Their people, how where did their hearts go? Did they follow God and trust them, or did they trust themselves? One of the saddest verses in the Bible, in my opinion, is in Judges 2.10. It said, after that whole generation, the parents who took the promised land, after they had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up. That's their children. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. How sad is that? That God had done so many amazing things for these people, but they did not they did not teach that to their children, and their children didn't know what he did, and they just served the nations around him. And that's the story of judges, of sin, right? And, and then they, they'd be conquered, and they would cry out to God, and God would save them, and that happens over and over. About 12 times we see these different judges, but what we see in the end of this is that Israel is living just like the nations that were there before them. The nations that had that stirred God's anger that's how Israel was. The, the end of uh, the book of Judges, are, I think, are like the worst chapters in the Bible. I hope I never have to preach on these. They are so depressing. But it just shows what happens when there's no king of Israel, what happens when there's no godly leaders, when there's nobody looking to the Lord, what happens. And here's just the summary. Of just the last five chapters, a son steals money from his mom. He makes idols, he puts idols in the house of the Lord. There's extortion, homosexual rape, dismemberment of a body, civil war, genocide, and kidnapping. Talk about depressing. This is the holy nation. This is God's people. And this is how they're acting, just like the nations before them but then there's this little bit of hope. There's a lady named Hannah. Then, in the midst of all this, in the midst of this kind of culture, this lady cries out to the Lord. She has faith in the Lord. She has a child whose name's Samuel, and she gives this child to the Lord. and said, may this child serve you. And this child does. He has a heart for God. He lives, he lives with integrity. He ends up leading Israel during this time. He shows them what it's like when a a leader has his heart set on God, the blessings that surround them. So for the very first time, we start to see these blessings that come about through Samuel's life, through his ministry. But when he is old, it's time to pass the mantle to someone else. But here's what happened. It says when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. It was Joel, and the second son was Benijah, they served at Bathsheba, so good, that's cool, but his sons did not follow his ways, oh no, they turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So there we go again, the elders of Israel gathered together and called Samuel at Ramah, they said to him, you are old, your sons do not follow your ways, So that's good. They they at least understood that what they saw in front of them was not right. They said, your your sons are not following your ways, so give us a king. That's okay. Right? That part's okay. Even in Deuteronomy 17, God says, you're going to get to the point, you're going to get in the new land, you're going to get established, and you're going to want a king. Okay? So then he shows them what kind of a king he wants. Someone who's uh, from their people. Someone who's uh, faithful to God. Who's not concerned about the size of their army or about how much gold they have, but they're more concerned about following God's law. He says, "That's the kind of king we want." So it's okay. But they said, "Give us a king so that we can be like the other nations, so we could just be like them." This grieves Samuel's heart. It's funny; like he, he wasn't sad because they called him old. Some of us would be like, "Oh, that hurts my feelings." And he wasn't sad because his sons didn't serve the Lord, but that that genuinely would make me sad. But he says, I'm sad because they want to be just like the nations around them. So he cries out to the Lord and the Lord hears him. He says, listen to all that my people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Do you hear that? They've rejected me as their king. They have been doing this their whole history. Since I brought them out of Egypt, they have always forsaking me and serving other gods. So he says, well, so listen to them. Give them what they want, but warn them that this is not going to be good. Just give them the warning. But the people still said, they still said, we heard what you said. Yeah, we heard your warning, and we want a king just like the other nations. So they didn't want a king under God, they wanted a king instead of God. You hear that? They didn't want a king under God. That would have been fine. If they would have come and said, uh, Samuel, uh, we love your ministry. You did great. We'd like to have a king, a king that was just like you, that came under God, that, that had God's um, understanding and favor and blessing. That's what we would like. That would have been wonderful. That would have moved everything forward. They said, we want to be like everybody else. We just want to be like the people around us. We want a king that will go out and fight our battles. We don't want a king like God that's going to, like, um, you know, scare the army by, like, moving the trees or doing weird things in the night. Like, we want a king that will go out and fight the old-fashioned way. They rejected God as their king. Because deep in our hearts, we just want to be just like everybody else. Right? They had the most wonderful king, the most powerful king. But instead they said, we want a human. We want to be just like the people around us. So what happened? Samuel warns them. And I won't read all of you, but you can find in 1 Samuel 8, 10 to 20. This is what he basically says. He says, okay, you want a king. Here's what the king is going to do. He's going to take your sons from you. He's going to put them in his army. They're going to go fight his battles. Your sons are going to die. He's going to take your daughters, and they're going to be serving him. They're going to be making the food and doing all the chores and all that. He's going to take your daughters. He says he's going to take your servants from you. He's going to take your money. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your food, all of that to feed his army. He's going to take all these things from you. That's what he's going to do because that's what kings do. And they still said, no, we still want it. You guys, that's so much like, I don't know if you can relate to that, but that's, that's us. That's our heart so often. We hear uh, somebody say, oh, God's going to bless you. He's going to take care of you. You just got to follow him and just serve him. Just keep your eyes on him. And there's wonderful things, right? He has a wonderful plan. And we hear that and we say, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but I want to be like everybody else. I want to do what they do. I want to go, like, do all the stuff that my friends are doing or do what they did in college or whatever. We, We keep hearing these things that God's going to take care of us and bless us, but we just want to do what the world has for us, even though we're warned. So this is not going to go well for you. It's going to hurt. It's going to sting. And we said, that's okay. I'll take my chances. So God said, all right, you want a king, I'll give you a king. I'll give you a king that you guys want, that you asked for. I'll give you a guy named Saul. Saul was tall, strong, handsome, but he had no heart for God. He didn't care for the things of God. In fact, those people who did have a heart for God, like Samuel, David, and even his son Jonathan, he tried to kill. He tried to get rid of. He had no heart for the Lord, and he was just a failure of being a king. But that was Israel's first king. They wanted it. God said, I'll give it to you. But after that, he said, now I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give you the king that I'm picking. So he told Samuel, he said, go, go over to Bethlehem. Go to the house of Jesse, and there you're going to anoint the next king. And so he does. He goes there, and he finds this, this man named El- Elab or Eliab, something like that. And he finds him. He's strong. He's, 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 he's tall. He's handsome. Samuel says, that must be the king. But remember these famous words, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God's more concerned with the heart than anything else. And so he says, I'll find that person, that person who has a heart after me. And going all the way down through all the brothers, it finally ends with David, who was out with the sheep. Just a little shepherd boy, still young, still developing, certainly not as tall or as strong as his brothers, but he had a heart after God. And he would be the next king, he would take Samuel or Saul's place. And he would lead Israel. And he followed the Lord. And the Lord started blessing Israel with abundance. Started clearing out the land. Even the, the Jebusites, they lived in that city called Jerusalem, right? They never, for 400 years, never really able to take that city until David did. He we said, we're going to do that. They expanded the borders, right? They pushed back the enemies, all right, so he's taking Jerusalem, and he's building this nation. He's, the Lord's blessing it. But at the height of his kingship, he makes a mistake, right? It says when the army went out, he should have gone out, just like the people said, right? We want a king that will go out before us and fight our battles. But he stayed back and got involved with Bathsheba and had a child with her and had her husband killed. And after that, from that point on, you see his family just crumbling around him, just crumbling. There's rape in his family. There's usurping power in his, uh, in his family. There's all kinds of bad things. At the end of his life, he's starting to see some peace, and he makes a census, and he says, I want to count my army. I want to count my people, even though he knew it was God's people, but he was still like, out of pride saying, I want to see what I built. But here's a man who, he, he honored God. He did so much good for the country, but yet he had so many failures. Bathsheba, the census, and all these other things. But yet, God still says, but he's a man after my own heart. Does that make any sense to you? He's far from perfect. But what did David do? What did David do? When he was at his worst, where did he turn? Every single time. He turned back to God. Okay? That's what made him uh, a man after God's own heart. Because he turned back to God. He didn't go back to the other gods, Baal, or whatever other God was around at that time. That's what all the other people did. That's what judges did, Gideon and all of them. They turned away. But David kept coming back to the Lord. And that's where God blessed him. He said, because you keep coming back to me, I know you're going to mess up. I know you're not perfect, but you keep coming back to me. That made him a man after God's own heart. But after him was Solomon. That was his son Solomon. His Solomon continued to build upon what, what David built. Instead of David building the temple, Solomon built it. He built the most gorgeous, beautiful temple that anybody had ever seen. He brought complete peace to the region. All right? gold was so like in abundance that silver was worthless. Silver and bronze, like, oh, that's nothing. We have so much gold in this city. Like, he really established the city with peace, with prosperity, with wisdom, with riches, with all of these things. That is the kingdom of God. A holy nation who was, had their eyes on God, who worshiped Him, who focused Him, who saw them as their king, and God blessed them in every way possible. I want you to think of that picture. When you hear the kingdom of God, when you hear Jesus talk about our others, the kingdom of God, it's that right there at their height of their. Of their the prosperity of Israel with the height of the blessing that is around them, it's because God's blessing was totally upon them. We were his people, had the land and the blessing. Right? All those things that he talked to Abraham about were being fulfilled there. And I, sometimes when I, when I think about heaven, right, and maybe you guys do too, we we, we think about like just kind of the spirits floating in the sky somewhere and all that. But what I want us to do is I I think this picture of Solomon's Israel is more like heaven than whatever we're probably thinking in our minds. That picture is more like what he talked about in Eden. Remember with Adam and Eve, he says, here's what I want you to do. You're my people. I'm going to send you out. Go fill the earth. Subdue it. Bring peace. And we see that here in Israel at this time. The earth is subdued. There's peace. They built this kingdom, this kingdom of holy people seeking the Lord. Do you guys remember a few years ago? It was probably, well, I don't know, maybe over 10 years ago when Starbucks would have those, um, like they'd have quotes on their cups, you know, quotes to inspire or whatever. Um, a lot of authors and all that. There was one cup that was written by an L.A. Um, Times writer. And he, he wanted to be on a cup so bad, but he was just a newspaper guy. And so he called up Starbucks and said, hey, how do I get on your cups? And uh, they said, well, it's kind of reserved more for authors and all that, but give us some quotes and we'll take a look. So he sent him 15 quotes. Some of them were really crazy and like kind of funny and odd. Some of them were just, just weird. But one of them was like, uh, it was a joke between him and his wife. He said it one night, his wife started laughing. He's like, oh, that's a good one. I'm going to write that. And this is what he said. All right, this is David Stein. He wrote this. Heaven is totally overrated. Clouds, listening to the people play the harp. It should be somewhere you can't wait to go, like a luxury hotel. Maybe blue skies and soft music were enough to keep people in line in the 17th century, but heaven has to step it up a bit. They're getting by because they only have to be better than Hell. That's his quote. He said, I got so much hate mail from all the Christians around the country. Right? But you could get mad and say, why did he write that? That's not even cool. But honestly, like isn't that what a lot of us think? Like when we think of heaven, we don't know. We don't have a concept. And we just kind of think like these angels and clouds and floating and like, you know, soft music and nice breezes. You know, like, what do you do in heaven? I, I don't know. What are they doing on earth? You're kind of like, that's your entertainment. You know, I, that's our concept for many of us. And it's so, like, not right. That's not biblical. Because when we think about heaven, when we see that, we'll get to that here at the end of July. But heaven's very, very different. And it looks a whole more, lot more like this. Than what we had imagined. And so we as Christians, we got we can't be like just thinking, you know, heaven is just these clouds and angels and harps and, and all of that. We've got to say, what is the kingdom of God? When I pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Your kingdom come, your will be done, what am I looking for? What kind of thing am I anticipating? I want to see God on his throne. I want to see him coming and ruling and people obedient to him. I want to see his blessing around us. Much like what he was doing in Israel. But here's why that's not the complete picture of the kingdom. It's because you had Solomon who as great as he was, he was still a man and he was sinful. And we see his failure. Right? As bringing peace to the nations which was a great thing he had accumulated 700 wives 300 concubines right each of these wives bringing their own gods with them and solomon wanted to be a good husband saying well we'll make a space for you and pretty soon he has 700 shrines throughout israel probably more he fell he started worshiping the other gods the israelites they're intrigued something different something new We'll give it a shot. We'll try it. And pretty soon, he had fallen from the example of David who went only to God, only coming back to him where Solomon went to these other gods. And things started to unravel. And you kind of just see this history of just the judges, not very good, and then you see David coming up there and Solomon, and then you just see it wind down. And after Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided into two. And then we go into these kings, right, about 40 different kings. And these kings really are about on the same level as the judges, probably worse. Not a good time. We look at that and we say, is that all there was? Is that all there was? Just a few years of prosperity. But if we see that as a model of the kingdom, of what God had been doing and what he can do when the leaders follow him and when the people follow him and when they're being obedient to him as a king. When that is happening, what can God do? What does it look like? But that's just a picture of what is to come. Because in God's kingdom, it's not going to be David or Solomon on the throne. It's going to be Jesus, the perfect and righteous king. He's going to be leading his people with justice and love and mercy. You're going to see people completely obedient to him as a king. And you're going to see his blessing around the world. His land. The whole earth is his. but what we saw with the end of of Israel was much like what we saw in Eden. We see Eden revisited, right? After Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from the garden, and that's what would happen to Israel. With all of their sin, they would be banished, they would be put in exile, taken away from their land. The Assyrians would come in, the Babylonians would come in and take them out. And the question there is again what we asked before. Remember after Adam and Eve we said how will we get back into God's presence? How will we get back to be his people and his land with his blessing? And the same thing they're asking in in the exile. How will we get back to you Lord? How will we be your people in your land with your blessing? And all that's going to come with Jesus. As he brings his kingdom. As he is the righteous king, and so we spend our time looking at Israel's history, and it's important, and it's real, and it's happened, but it also should like wet our appetite for God's kingdom. For as cool as that is, that's just a partial, that's just in, a little sample of it. But God's kingdom is coming; it's real. He's the real king. He has a real kingdom. And we pray and we desire for that kingdom to come to earth. That God's will will be done. And it's going to happen. But we as the people of God, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we have to start living it now. Right? Let's, Let's not just wait for the future or not just think that it's just a fairy tale or everything, but let's believe it and live now as citizens of his kingdom. What do we need? We need leaders to follow the Lord with all their heart. Right, That will follow God first and foremost. So I would ask, even though our church, we're, the church is not the kingdom of God, we're just a part of it, right? But pray for us. Pray for me as a pastor. Pray for our elders. Pray for our staff. That we would follow the Lord with all of our heart. He would be our priority, that we would seek him, we'd be obedient to him. But I would ask you too, that you also are leaders. You're all leading something somewhere, whether you're leading in a ministry in a church or you're leading your family, you are leading. So you also seek the Lord with all your heart. Model that to your kids. Model that to your family, what it looks like to pursue the Lord to follow him, to be obedient to him. So we need leaders that will follow the Lord. We also need people to seek the kingdom, not to seek to be like the people around us. Right? That's what got them into trouble. They said, we want to be just like everybody else. And we as Christians, we struggle with sin sometimes. We struggle with being Christians in this community because we want to be just like everybody else. Right? We want to be like the neighbors or our friends. We have to understand this. We are citizens of heaven. We live in his kingdom. We're going to think differently than everybody else. We're going to behave differently than others. We're going to love differently. You think about what we're saying when we say we just want to be like everybody else. We're just saying, like, yes, we live in the kingdom of light. They live in the kingdom of darkness. They're, they're uh, enslaved by Satan. But I want to be like them. Instead of saying, I want to live in the light, I want to follow the king, and I want to, I want to share this light with them. I want to rescue them. I want them to come and, and experience the joy of God's blessing. So this is what we have to understand. I think that's why Gordon Feasts at the beginning, if we don't understand this, we don't understand Jesus. We just sing. We sang a song about him being King Jesus. Will he be the king of our lives? Now, today.